Well, let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll begin reading in uh, verse 13. If you, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4 is on page 987 of that Bible. We'll begin reading in chapter 4, verse 13, and finish at chapter 5, verse 11. All right? This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, we come before you knowing that we need your words more than we need any other words in our lives and in this world. We need your words to teach us truth. We need your words to guide our lives and our thoughts and our relationships. We need you to speak to us. And we are thankful that you have given us your words in the Scripture that we might know them and understand how you'd have us live. And so I pray in this time, your spirit will help me to speak and help us all to hear and to obey and to love and believe what you say. We pray it all for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. 
Let me ask you a question. Don't you feel like you need encouragement? I mean, as you think about life right now in 2020, don't you feel like you need some encouragement? This has been a very difficult year. I know I'm telling you something you didn't realize already. But this, <laughs> this has been a very difficult year, but for a, and for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> some are unique to individual families, and for some reasons that are shared by us all. A pandemic, and, and injustice, and unrest, and attacks on religious freedom, and the election, and all of the issues, and problems, and conflicts that come with each of those. And one word I keep hearing, one that you may be growing tired of at this point, is the word unprecedented. These are unprecedented times. We've never known or seen anything like this, like 2020. Well, that may be true for our generation, but if you widen the scope of your lens just a bit, you'll know that these are not unprecedented times in world history. We don't even actually have to go that far. If we just go back about a hundred years, we were in a war for the first time that spanned the entire globe, the war that was supposed to end all wars, World War I. And on the heels of that came the Spanish flu, which killed 50 to 100 million people worldwide. I actually just listened to a book on the Spanish flu, and it's interesting how many issues that we are dealing with related to this virus now are very similar to ones that were dealt with then. Issues of religious freedom, issues of personal freedom, of gatherings, who are we going to blame for this, where it started. Uh, That's why it's called the Spanish flu, because that was the most popular, and even though, according to this book, that's not even the best idea of where the Spanish flu actually started, but that's what it's named. And so that passes, and then you get into what are known as the Roaring Twenties, right? And you feel like, ah, finally, we can breathe, right? Everything's going to be great from now on. And then the stock market crashes in October 1929. And the Nazi party takes power in Germany. And here comes another world war with the slaughter of six million Jews the Great Depression, all of it, and all of it culminating in 1945 with the atomic bomb. And so we have this reminder, I think it's helpful for us to remember this from Ecclesiastes, what has been done is what will be done. And what has been done, sorry, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Or, in words probably only a few of us remember from the great philosopher Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. These are not unprecedented times, and yet all of these things are part of the mysterious way that God is working His plan and moving the world towards His purposed end. And you see, the truly unprecedented time, what is unknown to us now and what is not seen to us now, lies in the future when Christ returns. 
That will be the unprecedented time. Now, if the idea of Christ returning is a foreign concept, let me briefly explain what we mean by that. The Bible tells us, reveals to us, that Jesus Christ came, was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. That is what we remember during this time of year, that He lived a life of perfect righteousness, that He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, taking the wrath of God in our place. He was buried, and then He rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death, and He ascended to heaven. And all who trust in Him, all who trust in His sacrifice for their sin, will be forgiven and made right with God and have a home in heaven. But that's not the end of the story, you see. The ascension into heaven is not the end. Because the Bible tells us that a day is coming when Christ will return. He will not return in the same fashion that He came the first time. He will not return as a child, but as King, as the rightful King of the universe. He will judge the living and the dead. He will defeat and punish evil permanently. He will gather and glorify His people. And those who are trusting in Christ to save us will live forever in unhindered joy and fellowship with the Lord. In fact, all of creation will be remade. And we will live in an, on a new earth with new heavens, uncorrupted by the curse of sin. Now, if you've not heard that before, and you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would urge you to take seriously the fact that we are all sinners, and actually our sin is not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that as sinners, we will stand before a holy God. That is the greatest problem that we face. And we will all give answer to our lives, and there is no answer that I could come up with that's good enough for my life. But God, I was a pastor. You know I was a pastor, right? I studied the Bible and I helped people. You know this, right, God? There's no answer. I was a good husband. I was a good worker. I was faithful. I, I did this and I did that. I helped my community. I coached Little League. I did, I, I did everything I could. I didn't, you know, go down the path of uh, this, you know, life engulfing sin or that life engulfing sin. I'm generally better than all my neighbors, God. Don't you know that? Well, the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, and none of us have that. And that's our biggest problem. We don't have clean hands, we don't have a pure heart, and we are going to stand before the clean and pure and holy God and give answer for our lives. And we have no hope except that God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live in our place and die in our place so that all of our sin was laid on Him at the cross, and through faith in Him, His righteousness is counted to us. So in the sight of God, we do have clean hands and a pure heart, not our own. We have Christ's imputed to us. That's the beauty of the gospel. You don't get into heaven on your own merit. You ain't got no merit. Neither do I. Christ has it all, and the good news is He's willing to share. He's a giver. He's the ultimate giver. And this Christ will return. Now, doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't it encourage you to know that that day is settled, that day in the future is coming? Doesn't that help you to know that? Doesn't it keep you going to know that the temporal pains of this life in comparison to that are actually light and momentary? Isn't that good news? 
Doesn't it make you want to live for Jesus even more, knowing what He's done for you and what He will do? Well, that's actually the kind of encouragement we need, and actually that's the kind of encouragement that the Apostle Paul gives in this text. But he doesn't just give it and say, well, that's that. He gives it and says, now you keep doing that same thing. You keep encouraging one another. The point of the text is that in light of Jesus' return, encourage one another. In light of Jesus' return, encourage one another. So first, let's just think about the fact that Paul says, encourage one another. He says it in chapter 4, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. He says it in chapter 5, verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. The therefore means this is the logical conclusion of what I've just said. Let me say all this stuff. Therefore, the conclusion is you ought to do this. He talks about the return of Christ, right? Chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But he doesn't talk about it and then say, therefore, make charts, have debates, write books, argue about it. He doesn't say that. He says, this is the Lord will return, therefore encourage one another with these words. Which words, Paul? These words, the Lord will return. Encourage one another. Every single one of us is meant to encourage one another. The verb in Greek is parakaleo. It means to call someone to your side in order to help or renew or refresh them by speaking. It's not mere affirmation, okay? This is how this word is often used. And we often think about encouragement. When people talk about wanting to encourage other people, they often talk about it as just a a pat on the back and a you can do this and you got this kind of thing. But that's not precisely how the Bible uses this word. It's also translated in other places the same exact word as exhort urge, appeal, even comfort. So here's the thing. Don't think about encouragement as a cheerleader. All right? You know, if you were a cheerleader, wonderful. I'm thankful that you were a cheerleader. But sometimes there are some cheerleaders who don't quite pay attention to the game. All right? So it's late in the fourth quarter, and they're still saying, we're number one, we're number one, and we're down 42 to nothing. Right? That, that is not encouragement. Okay? You're the best as you're laying on the mat and the ref is counting you out to ten. Right? That's not encouragement. That kind of blind affirmation is what is common in our society, but it's actually not helpful to our souls. So don't think of encouragement as a cheerleader. Think of encouragement as a coach. Okay? A coach will say all kinds of things including affirming what's right, but also talking about what it is that each player needs to do to do their part, to do good, to, do, to help the team, to keep going, to keep going, to keep going. That is what a coach does. And Christians are meant to encourage one another in the sense that we're meant to be coach-like for one another, to come alongside and speak the truth in love, to help renew zeal and commitment for the Lord. 
If you remember last week, I'm so thankful for, for John and his ministry among us last week, and he preached from Hebrews 10, and the very last thing that he talked about was this notion of encouraging one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, let me just remind you, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, when you got up this morning and you started getting ready, what did you think that you were coming here to do? Just think about that. What is it as you're brushing, I hope you brush your teeth, but as you brush your teeth and you combed your hair and you got dressed and you're getting the kids ready, how, exactly what did you think that you were coming here to do? Well, you say, I was coming here to worship the Lord. Well, of course you are coming here to worship the Lord. We, we do that week by week. We want to honor Him, lift Him up through praise and prayer and preaching because He alone is worthy. But I want you to notice the emphasis that the writer to the Hebrews says. Just look at that verse. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but he's drawing a contrast, right? But the contrast he draws is not a contrast between neglecting to meet together and meeting together. That's not the contrast that he draws. He contrasts neglect with encouragement. Isn't that interesting? Don't you find that interesting? You should stop when you see something like that. Because it's not what you would expect. You can either neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, or you can encourage one another. In his mind, there's more to meeting together than meeting together. There's more to going to church than sitting in the pew. There's more than going to receive. There's more to it than that. In fact, I think I would argue that there is a way to neglect meeting together while you're actually meeting together. There is a way to slip in and slip out. There is a way to neglect relationships. There is a way to think I am only here to receive and not to give. I am only here for my spiritual benefit and for nobody else. But the fact is, the writer to the Hebrews says something far different. He says the opposite of neglect is encouragement. That we must not just be present, we must be active. Coming alongside one another. In one another's triumphs and struggles. And even in sin and suffering, we put our arms around another and we speak. We help one focus on what is eternal. We help remind of what's true when circumstances are hard. We walk with somebody as they are seeking to repent of sin and change and grow to be more like Jesus. We call that person to keep trusting, keep obeying. And you know, the first step to having that kind of relationship with anyone is, in the church, instead of slipping out, stepping toward somebody else. The very, very first part of the first step may just be, so, what's your name? I wonder how many times you've looked around and thought, I don't hardly know the names of any of the people in here. 
Have a conversation. Begin to talk about, I mean, begin after a service to talk about what it is that the Lord said through His Word. How you are impacted by it. Learn a name. Have a conversation. Go to lunch. I mean, just start building relationship. Because encouragement comes best when it's wrapped in relationships. Encouragement can come from complete strangers, but it's always better wrapped in a relationship. Always better. But I do want to make sure that we all know that this encouragement is not next-level Christianity. Like, I'm just a beginner here, all right? I'm just new to the faith. Once I get to whatever the next level is, then I'll start to do that. It's interesting that Paul has no levels when he gives commands. This isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for deacons. This isn't just for people who've been in the church their whole life. This is for anybody who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you may be very uncomfortable with it, but it's time to start growing, actually doing helps us to grow. It's for us all. It's commanded. But here we have more than just the command, encourage one another. We actually have help to know how to encourage one another. And, and, and what Paul's doing here is actually an example for us. So, in, verse, in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, he tells us, and this is our second heading, encourage one another to hope in Christ. Encourage one another to hope in Christ. These Christians don't know what to think about family and friends who have died. They were Christians, and, and, and isn't our, doesn't our gospel say that we will live forever? What are we supposed to think about people who die, Paul? How are we supposed to deal with that? Well, the culture around them wasn't much help at all because most of the pagan culture of the day would tell them, hey, when you die, that's it. That is the end of existence. And some people still believe that today, but you know what? For the most part, what I've found is that once you get to the funeral home, most people are universalists. Most people will want to assure themselves that aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so or this person or that is definitely in a better place because they were a good person or that they're just in a better place or that their pain has to be ended now. But that kind of hope is just not built, that kind of attempt at gaining hope is not built on the truth of the Bible. And so it's an illusion. It's like, it's like, it's like the mirage of an oasis in a desert that you think you can go and jump in and cool off and drink the water. And when you get there, you find it's just sand. And then you think you see it again, and so you go after it. And you just keep reminding yourself of wrong thinking over and over and over again, but you're just drinking the sand. But Paul steps into this culture and he basically says that even when you're grieving, you have real hope. Let's start reading in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Hope looks for some kind of good in the future. You know, we are hoping 
that the vaccine will, right? What that is, is a desire to see something good in the future. But the way most of the peop, most people in our culture use the word hope is as if they've closed their eyes and they're about to blow out their birthday candles. It's just, oh, I really hope. You know, it's, like, it's more like making a wish than it is anything else. Something that doesn't seem very realistic, and I'm not sure I even think it could happen, but boy, I sure hope it does. That's not Christian hope at all. Biblical hope is different than that. The Christian's hope isn't simply a desire for a good future. It is the confident expectation that good in the future will happen. Okay? Not just because I really, really, really want it, but because God has promised it. You see, our hope is not based on us or any circumstance working out the way we want it to. The hope of the Christian is based on the fact that when God says something, He does it. God comes to Moses and says, I will deliver my people. And what does He do? He delivers His people. God says that you will be exiled if you're unfaithful from the land. What does God do? Exiles them from the land. God says, I will bring a remnant back. And what does God do? Bring a remnant back. God says, I will send a Messiah. And what does God do? Sends a Messiah. God says, I will send this Messiah and He will die for your transgressions. And what happens? He dies for our transgressions. Over and over and over again, the reason why reading through the Bible is such an important thing, and we have... We're going to have 2021 reading plans, the same three reading plans, so you can pick one and use it. The reason why reading larger scope of the Bible is so important is because you can see over and over and over and over again that when God speaks, He's not just speaking. He speaks and then He does. And He often explains, hey, you know why that happened? Because I said it would happen. And so that's why now, as we await the future, the return of Christ, we can do so with confident expectation that that good will really take place. And why do we know it? Well, look at verse 14. He says he doesn't, before that, he says he doesn't want them to grieve as others do who have no hope. Why? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. There is the foundation. The fact that Jesus died and rose again is the foundation of our hope. I mean, I want you to just, church family, just take a moment and think about the people that we have lost this year just out of our church family. Think about the Christians in your family who have died this year. The reality is, is that in the holiday season, grief is a constant companion, like a, like a shadow following us around from one tradition to another, reminding us of loss, especially in the first year after a loss. And while some people would say, well, Christians are supposed to have so much joy, they're not supposed to grieve at all. Well, Paul doesn't say that at all. He just says your grieving is going to be unlike any other grieving. It's going to, in fact, be holy grieving in the world. It will be unique grieving. There will be no other grieving like it because mixed with your tears is hope. You may be always sorrowful right now, but you are also filled with hope. 
And in that, you can rejoice. Paul wants to be clear that Christ will return and when those who have been laid in the grave, at the point when Christ returns, those who have been laid in the grave will no longer stay in the grave. That's what he says. He says, verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The pain of loss, the pain of death, separating from us, for us from those we love, it is real, it is strong, but it is not strong enough to take away the hope of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? The pain of loss is real, it is deep, and it is strong, but it is not strong enough to wrestle away the hope of Jesus Christ. We have to hang on to that, brothers and sisters. And it's not just in grief, it's through all of the sufferings of life that we need this encouragement of hope that in our darkest days, the light of Christ is actually still shining. And one day, that will be all there is. There will be no more shadow. No shadow of grief or loss or pain or mourning or sickness or dying. The Lamb of God will be the lamp. And it will be all light. That as Romans 8 says, we're all groaning for that day like a woman in labor. And because Christ is raised from the dead, the groans of this age will come to an end and a new age will be born. An age with no sin. Can I just tell you something? I got to hear that on my dark days. I got to hear it. Because do you know one of the things that the enemy loves to do in your darkest days is to keep you away from this book and its promises. To think that there's something outside of this that you actually need more than this. And in all my darkest days, yes, I need the Bible, but... I often need somebody else just coming up and saying something like, hey, don't lose sight of hope. Nothing. This week, I have a friend, I had no idea how to respond to the difficulties in his life. I mean, like just some kind of ingenious thing. So all I sent him was, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Because nothing can. Don't we need that? Don't you need that in your darkest day? You don't just need somebody patting you on the back and saying, hey, let it all out, vent it, scream, punch a wall, hit a pillow. Oh, yeah, it feels good in the moment. Do you know what hitting a pillow and punching a wall and screaming, you know how much that solves any problem in this life? Zero. Because once you get done and all the adrenaline's gone, you know what's still there? The problem. The problem is still there. It hasn't actually fixed anything. We need hope. And we need one another to give that hope. 
When we are in our darkness, we need someone to come along and take us by the hand and lead us to the light of truth. And that's what encouraging one another does. So he says, encourage one another to hope in Christ. But not only that, encourage one another to live for Christ. That's where we get to in chapter 5. Paul's still talking about the return of Christ, but he focuses on the fact that you can't possibly know when it's going to happen. So let's start reading in chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Jesus will return. He will come like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected. Do you know what thieves never do? I never have a notification on my phone from a thief wanting to schedule a time when they could break into my house. I don't get a calendar notification on that. Neither does any pregnant woman get a notification on their phone at such and such a day, at such and such a time, labor will begin. It just happens, right? It comes when you least expect it. In one of of Susan's pregnancies, she thought it was heartburn. It was not heartburn. It was a baby, all right? And so it just, it's going to come like that. And, 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 and even though that is true, there are going to be people walking around saying, hey, we've got peace and we've got security. I mean, isn't that how you walk around your house? Isn't that how you will walk around today? You're not going to walk around today thinking, oh, at any moment a thief could break in. Oh, at any moment a thief could break in. No, you're going to lock all the doors. You're going to set the alarm. And you're going to say, we're good. That's how people are in the world. That's how, that's how we get when we forget that there is something beyond this world. That there is a reality greater than the human interactions that we have. And so there are people who will try to buy us that line that we can have peace and security in this world. We can keep making this world a better place little by little, generation by generation. And one day we may just really get there and we may really live in utopia. Won't that be a great day? The last time, this is not the first time I've preached this text in this pulpit. The last time I preached this text, President Trump was about to be inaugurated. Some people thought peace and security would be lost after the inauguration. Some people thought peace and security would be gained after the inauguration. And do you know, four years later, there is nothing new under the sun? Some think that peace and security hinge on this next inauguration. And some people think... Peace and security will be lost because of this next inauguration. But Christians should not buy into any of it. There is no president who will take office who can give peace and security that will last. No matter his plan, no matter his power, he can't do it. And when we look to a president for something only Jesus can give, we make that person an idol a replacement for God, and Christians cannot do it. And can I tell you, many of our social media accounts are not reading like we believe that. It's reading like what, we, what I need is my idol on my stand. And if you take away my idol, we will never have peace and security in this world. Oh, friends, 
What a hopeless condition to be in. That is so hopeless. And maybe even more significantly than that, it is not Christian. There is no one who will fill the Oval Office who has ever been called the Prince of Peace. So Christians should know, first, that in this section he says that Christians should know that Christ will return. If you look at verse 4 and 5, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, he doesn't mean that we have some kind of secret insight that we know, well, Christians will get the calendar reminder but not anybody else. That's not what he means. He means in the way that people are walking around saying there is peace and security, 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 not realizing that it's just an illusion and it's not actually real and that Jesus Christ will come. We don't do that. We don't walk around thinking what we've got to do is all focused in this world. There's peace and security. Well, there is, but it's in Christ, and it ain't here. We know better than that. We don't, while we don't know when Jesus will return, we do know that Jesus will return. And we, while we may not have it marked on our calendars, we know it's marked on the calendar, right? But not only that, Christians should live as if Christ will return. So look at what he says in verse 6 and 7. He says, stay awake. Stay awake. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Don't get lulled to sleep by the culture. Keep your eyes peeled. Be on the lookout for danger, especially the danger to your soul. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Not, being so, be sober is the next thing he says. Not just don't get drunk, though that is certainly would be included, but be sober-minded, be self-controlled, be ready for anything. How? With a life of faith, hope, and love. Now, if you just like to put everything in a little box, you're going to think immediately of Ephesians 6, and you're going to say, now, wait a second. The, the, the breastplate was never faith and love. The breastplate was righteousness. Come on, Paul. Are you forgetting all of the pieces of the armor of God? No. The reason Paul uses these pieces is not because certain ideas must go with certain pieces, but because life is war. That's why. So don't get all hot and bothered about the fact that he doesn't use the exact same label for each one. The fact is, is that living here with everyone saying there's peace and security, living as citizens of heaven and knowing that there is not lasting peace and security in this world, no matter how good it may seem and no matter how bad it may seem, that instead our hope is in Christ. We live for Christ. It is a war that we keep fighting. Multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus told us to be watchful, didn't He? Over and over again. In fact, 
Just stick your finger there and turn back to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I just want to read you one example. Living for Christ is how we are ready for His return. Jesus says it over and over again. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are the servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and it finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter talks, Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and and did deserve a beating (coughs) will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of, much, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. These are sobering words, aren't they? That we are to be living for the Master, not knowing when the Master will return. And that there are consequences. I remember when traveling evangelists would come uh, to my church when I was growing up, and they would say something like, are you ready for the return of Jesus? Now, what they meant was, are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know, that's almost never what Jesus means by being ready for His return. (laughs) It's always living for Him, being ready, being watchful, being awake. So are you ready? Does your, does your life say, I am ready for the Lord to return? I am ready for that. Does it say it by the fact that you're living for Him? But not just do it. Not just do this. Look at why. The same reason that we are to hope in Christ is the same reason we are to live for Christ. Look at verse 9 and 10 now in first, back in 1 Thessalonians 5. Why should we put on this helmet and this breastplate, and and, and why should we not live as if we're in the dark? For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Why did Jesus die for you? According to that verse, so that you will live with Him meaning you will put on the breastplate of faith and love. You will put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. You will not live like you're in the dark, 
but that you are one in the light. And then he says, not just do this. Hey, make sure you guys do live like that. What does he say in verse 11? Look at it. What does he say in verse 11? Therefore, what? Encourage one another. Apparently, this too is what we need to be saying to one another. That we need to be encouraging one another to live in the way that God calls us to live. To put our arms around one another and encourage faith, encourage love, encourage hope, encourage readiness. Remind one another that there's no peace and security in this world. Yes, you lost that. Yes, that was crushed. Yes, this is not going how you want. But there wouldn't be real peace even if you got everything you want in this world. What is it... What does, it get, what does it help a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? No matter what happens, we are to encourage one another to remember that we don't live as if this world is all there is, as if Jesus isn't really going to return. We live for Him knowing, we will, knowing He will return. You see, in light of Jesus' return, we encourage one another. Do you know how often you need to hear, keep going, keep living for Christ? It's worth it. He will come back. All of the dividends will pay. All of it. All of the sacrifice of this life will have been worth it. Everything you gave up will be returned and a hundredfold more, more than you could ever imagine. Keep living for Christ. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. We need to hear that all the time. We need to hear it all the time. In light of Jesus' return, encourage one another. Encourage one another to hope in Christ. Encourage one another to live for Christ. Now, let me just finish with two thoughts and a brief story. One brief, two brief thoughts. First is, encouragement isn't flashy, all right? <laughs> encouragement is not flashy. It doesn't live in the spotlight. It doesn't just hang out in the pulpit. Encouragement stops in hallways. Encouragement travels across dinner tables. Encouragement lingers in the foyer. Encouragement dials the phone. Encouragement embraces the grieved. Encouragement weeps with the sufferer. Encouragement walks with a sinner who is repenting. You'll never be written up in some wonderful article because you just encourage people. So, because we don't do it for that. We do it for the Lord and for others. Encouragement isn't flashy. Second thought, encouragement is needed. It is clear to me at this cultural moment that we as a church must hope in Christ alone. Right? It is clear to me that at this cultural moment, we as a church must live for Christ alone. Right? And one of God's ordained means to keep us steady and focused and going is encouragement. When the Lord called me to pastoral ministry, which is about, oh goodness, I can't even do the math, 26, 27 years ago now, I had a, upon sensing that the Lord was calling me to ministry, I had a very deep and real sense of my own sinfulness. I knew specific sins that I'd committed, sins that seemed like giant, immovable obstacles between me and ministry. And in the midst of wrestling with it, a friend took me to lunch, a friend named Denny Brinkman. He was 20 years older than me, 
But he's a mentor to me. He's a friend to me. He took me to lunch. I told him my dilemma, and his first question to me, I lay out all these things. Denny, you don't know what I've done. And I just start like as if we were in a confessional at a Catholic church. I just start laying it out. This is, this is what I've done. His first question to me was this, Toby, do you believe the Bible's true? <laughs> Which seemed an odd question after I had just laid out much of what is wrong with me. I said, yes. And then he quoted to me 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said, have you confessed your sin? Yes. You seeking to live in repentance? Yes. You can know that your sin is forgiven. And because Jesus has died and risen again, your sin is no longer held against you. And having known all of the things that you just said... You're doing things to steer clear of those sins, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't ever want to go back. And he assured me that none of those sins actually disqualify a person from serving the Lord in pastoral ministry. Then he was with me. Then he put his arm around me. Then he spoke truth into my life, and he kept me on a path to pursue serving the Lord in pastoral ministry. His encouragement at that critical moment in my life is part of the reason I am standing here today telling you that Paul commands us to encourage one another. It wasn't flashy, but it was needed. And who knows how your obedience to this command to encourage one another might keep others going, might turn things around for them, might strengthen them to serve the Lord. Who knows? And also, if we don't obey this command, who knows what discouragement might settle in, how hopelessness might flourish among us, how pleasing self and chasing the world might become the controlling desires of our heart. It makes a huge difference. So encourage one another. In light of Jesus' return, encourage one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before You, thankful for Your Word, thankful for Your Son who has died for us, thankful that because He has died and rose again, we have hope. Thankful that because He has died for us, we can live for Him. We pray, God, that You would make us a church family full of encouragement for one another. Help us to steer clear of just blind affirmation. Help us to speak Your words in appropriate ways, to speak the truth in love, to help one another keep our eyes focused on Jesus to help us be reminded of the hope that we have, to be refreshed and renewed in our commitment to live for You. We pray all this in the name 
of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.